Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 423 with Michael Hyatt. I've been following Michael's work for a while, so it was a lot of fun to have this conversation. I think you'll find it super handy as you learn, one, how to do more of what you want with the yes, no, yes formula. Two, three beliefs that prevent you from delegating your tasks effectively. And three, how to feel like you're winning each day with the Daily Big Three. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced, check them out over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep423. Now, here's Michael's story. Michael Hyatt is the founder and CEO of Michael Hyatt & Company, a leadership coaching and development firm twice listed on the Inc. 5000 list of fastest growing U.S. companies. A longtime publishing executive, Michael is the former chairman and CEO of Thomas Nelson, now part of HarperCollins. He's a New York Times, Wall Street Journal, and USA Today, a best-selling author of several books, including Your Best Year Ever, Living Forward, and Platform, Get Noticed in a Noisy World. Michael is the creator of the Full Focus Planner, which combines quarterly goal tracking and daily productivity in a proven system for personal and professional achievement. His blog and weekly podcast Lead to Win are go-to resources for hundreds of thousands of entrepreneurs, executives, and aspiring leaders. He's been featured by Forbes, Inc., Entrepreneur Fast Company, and Wall Street Journal. He and his wife of 40 years, Gail, have five daughters, three sons-in-law, and eight grandchildren, and they live just outside of Nashville, Tennessee. So thanks to Michael for spending some time with us, and thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. Working remotely can be a challenge, especially for teams that are new to it. How do you deal with your work environment being the same as home while staying connected and productive? And then there's your newest coworker, the cat. Well, your friends at Trello have been powering remote teams globally for almost a decade. At a time when teams must come together more than ever to solve big challenges, Trello's here to help. Trello, part of Atlassian's collaborative suite, is an app with an easy-to-understand visual format plus tons of features that make working with your team functional and just plain fun. Trello keeps everyone organized and on the same page, helping teams communicate, focus, and connect. Teams of all shapes and sizes at companies like Google, Fender, Costco, and likely your favorite neighborhood coffee shop all use Trello to collaborate and get work done. Try Trello for free and learn more at Trello.com. That's T-R-E-L-L-O.com. Trello.com. Now, here's Michael. Michael, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thank you, Pete. I appreciate being on. Oh, boy. I think we'd have a ton of fun. But first, I want to hear about something fun in your life. You mentioned your dog, Winston, is exceptional in your About page, and I want to know why. He's like the perfect dog. His temperament is fantastic. He's just so easygoing. He always obeys. I don't know. I just, I feel like we won the lottery with him. He's an amazing dog. And how did you get him? Well, we found out about a breeder in Indiana um, who bred Australian Labradoodles. And so we got the dog from her. Then we sent him to a trainer in Indiana, a lady who actually is a Russian immigrant who trains dogs for the federal government and for state agencies and therapy dogs and all that. So she had him for about six weeks and I don't know what she did, but some kind of Russian thing, but it's amazing. <laughs> oh, Michael, I just love that so much <laughs> because it's like you eat, sleep, and breathe people development and now even dog development. <laughs> We're going to find the best trainer in the world. We're going to spend some some deep focused time immersed and, and come back uh, a renewed dog. Dog hacks. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, well, so you're 
unveiling some more wisdom in, in your latest book, Free to Focus. Uh, what's the main idea or thesis behind this one? Yeah, the main thesis behind this is you can actually achieve more by doing less if you have the right productivity system. And the problem with most productivity systems today is that they're designed to make you more productive. And maybe you're thinking, well, yeah, what's wrong with that? Here's the problem. People start out working a 12-hour day. They get some productivity hacks, adopt a few apps. They reduce it to eight hours, and then they fill it up with more work. And so they try to be productive so they could be more productive. And I say productivity is a means to an end. And you got to be very clear about what the end is. Otherwise, you're just going to fill your life with work. You're going to be overwhelmed. You're going to be burned out. And you're not going to get the kind of work-life balance that makes life rich and meaningful. And so when you talk about defining the end, can you give us a couple examples of how that gets articulated? Yeah, absolutely. So in the first part of the book, I talk about stopping and kind of taking stock. Get off that hamster wheel and ask, where is this hamster wheel going? Why am I running this race? What's it all about? And I say the end game needs to be about freedom. More productivity should lead to greater freedom, and specifically freedom in four areas. I talk about the freedom to focus. You know, focus is a superpower today in our distraction economy. And if you want to move the needle in your business and in your life, if you want your business to grow, if you want to get ahead in your career, you've got to be able to focus and do the deep work, the creative work that really creates the breakthroughs uh, in your business and in your personal life. So the freedom to focus. You also need the freedom to be present so that when you're at your son's little league game, you're not on your phone thinking about work. Or when you're out for a date with your spouse or your significant other, you're not thinking about work. Or when you're at work, you're not thinking about something that's going off the rails at home. So the freedom to be present. Then third, the freedom to be spontaneous so that your life's not so managed and not every last second is so planned that you just can't stop and enjoy life, smell the roses, so to speak. And then finally, the freedom, and this is really uh, underrated, but the freedom to do nothing at all. You know, all the brain research says that we're the most creative, we experience the biggest breakthroughs when our minds are the most relaxed. That means we've got to intentionally have that white space where we do nothing. And I learned this when I was in Italy a few years ago. They have a saying, in fact, they talk about la dolce farniente, which means the sweetness of doing nothing. Hmm. And it's true. You know, you think about when you have the breakthrough ideas, the most creative ideas, often it's in the shower or out for a walk or doing something that amounts to nothing. So that's what I'm after is freedom. And I think productivity should lead to that. Oh, that is a lovely turn of a phrase, the sweetness of doing nothing. And and I'm reminded, maybe when you said Italy brings about images, I'm just thinking about just sort of strolling, just, just walking with a, a good friend, yeah. catching up and chatting. And, and it's like, I enjoy doing nothing in those moments so much. It's like, I don't even want to be burdened with having to think about where we are going and like where the restaurant is, like just having faith that a good eatery will appear, if, if that's kind of what we're up to. And it's much more fun. Yeah, and I don't think they have bad food in Italy. Oh, in Italy, you're covered, sure. <laughs> yeah, everything I ate there was phenomenal. Totally. That's cool. So that's the, the process in terms of the steps as you're, we're, we're stopping, we're taking stock, and we're pointing to greater freedom and uh, a few kind of particular forms of freedom. And what comes next? Yeah. So in that same section under stop, we talk about formulate. So formulate a clear vision for what your productivity you want to accomplish with it. Then secondly, evaluate. And this means taking stock of our workflow, our work style, I talk about a concept there called the freedom compass, which I think is, is really a big paradigm shift and a way to think about your work. 
that makes it possible for you to focus on your highest and greatest work because not all work's created equal. So I talk about kind of a two-by-two matrix where you have passion intersecting with proficiency. So there's some tasks, and imagine this rotated 45 degrees and you've got a compass, where true north is where your passion and your proficiency come together. The things you love, the things that you uh, are deeply satisfying, that you enjoy, plus proficiency, the things that you're good at. And not just proficiency in your subjective opinion, but an objective reality where people are willing to pay you to do this. That I call the desire zone. That's where you want to focus the bulk of your time and the bulk of your energy. Directly south, directly below that, is what I call the drudgery zone. Things that you hate, you don't have any passion around it, and you're not very good at. And it's going to be different for everybody, but for me, it's things that look like administrative kinds of activities, like managing my email inbox, managing my calendar, booking travel, even finding the, the FedEx box. I mean, you know, just running errands. All that's in my drudgery zone, and it's kind of a grind when I have to do that. Then there's also the disinterest zone, where you don't have any passion, but you might be pretty good at it. And a lot of people get trapped in this because maybe they were good at something, they lost the passion, and they keep doing it because it keeps making the money, keeps you know bringing home the bacon. For me, when I started out as an entrepreneur, this was accounting. You know, I did it because I didn't want to pay somebody else to do it. And I was really good at it, but I didn't have any passion. And that leads to boredom. Then on the opposite side of the Freedom Compass from there, due west, would be what I call the distraction zone, where you like doing it, but you're not very good at it. And you end up escaping there and end up wasting a lot of time. So again, the key, and this it leads to the next part of the book, but the key is to eliminate everything that's not in your desire zone, the things that you're passionate about and proficient at, because that's where you're going to see the biggest growth, the biggest progress, the most results. So that's the chapter on evaluation. Yeah, that is a nice two by two matrix and a clever rotation it makes it a compass. So we talk about doing more of the good stuff and, and less of the drudgery. What are some of the, the best ways that we can accomplish that? You have some things about saying no and some things about outsourcing. How do we systematically get our proportions more and more in the desire space? Yeah, well, one of the things is, I think, to set ourselves up for success, and that's actually that third chapter in that first section before we get to the cut section, which is about rejuvenation. And this is uh, one of those things that's easy to overlook because we live in the, uh, the hustle economy where uh, we're encouraged to burn the candle at both ends, to work evenings and weekends. Elon Musk said, unless you're working mm -hmm. 80 to 100 hours a week, you're not going to make the progress you need to. So one of the most important things you can do is take care of yourself if you want to be more productive. Getting a good night's sleep, something as simple as that, can make the difference between whether you're focused or productive the next day. So I talk about sleep, nutrition, exercise relationships. Those have a lot to do with how productive we are. And so that's all in the rejuvenation chapter. But then moving into that second section, the section called cut. So the first one stop. The second one, second part of the framework is cut. How do we prune all that stuff that's not in our desire zone? And it really does start with elimination. So we got to eliminate the stuff that doesn't need to be done. And the best way to do that is to head it off at the beginning by getting better at saying no. Warren Buffett once said that the difference between successful people and really successful people is that really successful people say no to almost everything. But how do we do that without being a jerk? And so in the book, I talk about 
how to do that. I talk about how to give a graceful no. And I talk about it using a formula called yes, no, yes. It's the positive no that William Urry talks about in his book, The Power of a Positive No. So let me get illustrate. I spent most of my career in the book publishing industry. And so I still, to this day, get a lot of requests from aspiring authors who would like me to review their book proposal before they send it to an agent or a publisher. Now, I don't really have time to do that. I don't want to be a jerk, but I don't have time to do that. So I have an email template that I use, and I respond with that formula, yes, no, yes. And here's what it looks like. First of all, I start with an affirmation. So I start off not resenting the fact that they've asked me to review this proposal, but I'll say something like, hey, congratulations, you've done what 97% of most aspiring authors will never do, and that is create a written book proposal. That is a phenomenal first step, and it's a foundational step, an important one. Way to go. Then I move from the yes to the no, and here I want to give a very firm, unambiguous no, so there's no misunderstanding, and I'll say something like this. Unfortunately, in order to be faithful to my prior commitments, I have to say no. So I've made it very clear that I'm a person of integrity and trying to keep, trying to be faithful to my other commitments, but I give them a firm no. I don't say, check back with me in a month. You know, I'm a little busy right now because in a month it's going to be the same story. Right. So I might as well cut it off right now. Then I end with a positive with a yes so that I live a good taste in their mouth. I'll say something like, best of luck with your publishing product. Uh, Let me know when it comes out. I can't wait to pick up a copy. All the best. Thanks for honoring me with your request. Something like that. I've never gotten a negative response when I follow up with an email like that. For the most part, people are just glad that they heard back from me. Because so often we send a request like that, we don't hear because the person is procrastinating because they don't know how to respond. They want to say no, but they don't know how. So I make it very clear. Yeah, I really like that. I find that we talk about the, the we don't know how to respond and we procrastinate. I find that I get a lot of requests. It's sort of like someone's presenting me with an opportunity, but I don't think that they've given me nearly enough information to even evaluate if it's right. worth talking for 15 minutes about the thing. And so I've tried to craft my text expander generic response, which says, I will need to know more before I can tell you whether or not I can talk to you about this, which, which again, feels a little bit like, oh, boss, that one's really busy, you know, but, but that's really how I feel. It's like, I, you know, your product service offer better than I do. And what you're saying might be cool, but I really have no idea what this is supposed to be. Where's the value here? So could you explain that so that I could tell you if, if we can find 15 minutes? And see, that's a perfect example of what I talk about in the next chapter on automation, where you take something like Text Expander, or you could use your email app's signature capability, but come up with a list of email templates so that you could respond to the most common kinds of requests so that you don't have to create it from scratch every time. And I, I've tried to develop sort of this template mentality where I ask myself if, if this task I'm about to do, if I think I'm going to have to do it again in the future, Why not take a few extra minutes now, do it right, save it as a template or a text expander snippet so that I can reuse it in the future and not have to reinvent the wheel every time. So for in that example, you know, a great way to deal with that using the yes, no, yes framework would be to say, hey, thanks for thinking of me for your podcast. I'm honored. I would be happy to consider it, but I need just a little bit more information. And then you'd go through the information that you need and then let it go from there. 
There you go. That, that is a nice sentence. I'd be happy to consider it. I need some more information. Well, tell me, what are some other top templates you find yourself using again and again? Well, here's what I did, how I started this. This is probably about 15 years ago. I noticed that there was sort of a limited range of requests that I was getting. So I would get requests from people who wanted me to consider a speaking engagement or wanted me to consider serving on a nonprofit board or make a charitable contribution or just have coffee with me so they could pick my brain. So there were about 40 or 50 of these as I cataloged them. So then what I tried to do, I didn't sit down and write all these templates at once. Instead, what I d- began to do is incrementally populate a template database. And I, at the time, I was using email signatures uh, to do this. Now, Text Expander makes it even cooler. But to, to write these one at a time until I had a library of templates. And so every time one of those requests comes in now, I look for the template where I can respond. Very rare that I don't have a template. And instead of taking 10 or 20 minutes, now it just takes a few seconds. But it's not just email. So, for example, I use Apple Keynote for creating slide decks. So if I have a public speech that I'm going to give or a webinar that I have to give, I always start with a template, like with a webinar. You know, I've got seven main parts to all my webinars. They always start the same way. they got the same transitions and the same pivots and the same ending and all that. So it's kind of like paint by numbers. But again, I'm starting with sort of that template mentality of if I'm going to do this again, how can I do it right the first time so I could reuse it, polish it, improve it, and get better at this and take less time as I do it? There's so much good stuff here. I want to dig in and at all kinds of places, but not be too scattered. So first, let's let's chat a little bit in, in the realm of going back to stopping for a moment. You mentioned rejuvenation, and I think that we've heard from a few sleep doctors a lot of good tips there, and I'm a huge advocate for that. It's so important. But I want to get your take on when it comes to nutrition and exercise, boy, there's a lot of advice out there. You know, what have you found ultimately really yields good quality rejuvenation, energy, and freedoms? Well, first of all, let me just a disclaimer. You know, I'm not a physiologist or a doctor or, you know, a fitness trainer or any of that. What I do know is what works for me, and I have studied a little bit. But with regard to nutrition, I've found that one of the best things to do is to really take it easy on the carbs. So a high-carbohydrate diet creates a lot of problems in terms of focus and productivity. It's why when we eat low-quality carbs and we eat a lot of these kind of carbs like at lunch, like I'm talking about white bread, pizza, mashed potatoes, pasta, that's why we kind of go into that funk in the afternoon and get sleepy because that turns to sugar very quickly. It burns up fast. And it just doesn't keep our blood sugar level at at a level where we could be really productive. One of the things I've done, and this is, I may lose some of your listeners here, but one of the things I've done for several months now is I've been on the keto diet. And that's a high fat, moderate protein, low carbohydrate diet. And one of the things I had no idea about was how much brain fog I had until I started doing this diet. It was actually developed back in the 1930s to help epileptic children deal with seizures. And so there's a cognitive relationship between this diet, high fat, and your cognitive functioning. So that's been helpful to me. And I'm, I'm very careful about taking supplements, about checking my blood a couple times a week with my physician, or a couple times a week, a couple times a year with my physician, and just making sure that my markers are right and so that I can sort of as an early warning sign to head off problems before they happen. And then I work out five to six days a week, usually uh, about an hour, three days of cardio, three days of strength training. And all that just keeps my energy level up. It's important to move in some way like that. And when you do the the cardio or the strength training, what kind of intensity are you shooting for? 
Well, I would say moderate intensity. I mean, I'm kind of an achiever, so I'm always trying to beat my personal best. I feel like I'm in the best shape of my life that I've ever been in. I, I do work with a trainer who prescribes a program for me. We would get together once a month and reevaluate the program and see where I want to go from there. I was training for a half marathon this spring, but I injured my foot. So I'm going to back that off till this fall. But typically what I'll do on the cardio before I had the injury is that I'll run about 30 minutes of interval training twice a week. And then I'll do a long run and a progressively longer run on Saturdays. So yeah, depends on what I'm training for. Okay, very good. Well, so now talking about cutting again, you mentioned that there is something that we should permanently remove from our to-do list. What is this? First of all, you should remove the drudgery zone stuff. That's where you really start is with the drudgery zone activities. Those are not the best and highest use of you. They're not going to create leverage in your business or your personal life. You've got to really focus on those desire zone activities. And again, that begins with elimination and it goes to automation. And then that final chapter there is all about delegation, which one of the things I've found with people that have businesses or are leaders, until you can scale yourself, you can't scale your business. Understood. All right. Well, so when it comes to that delegation, any particular tips in terms of, of where to get started if you're having trouble letting go of anything? Yeah, I think the first thing that we got to do, Pete, is confront sort of the limiting beliefs or the, the way that we think about delegation. And, and in my experience with coaching now hundreds and hundreds of entrepreneurs, there's usually three sentences that rattle around in their head. The first one is, if I want it done right, I have to do it what? Myself. <laughs> right. Or here's another sentence that they have. This would be a second sentence. You know, that it takes longer to explain how to do it. I might as well just do it myself. Or they mm -hmm. say, you know, I can't really afford additional help right now. I guess I'm going to have to do it myself. As long as yourself is at the center of all this, you're not going to be able to grow. You're not going to develop additional capacity. You're not going to be able to accomplish what you want to accomplish. So let's look at those one at a time. So the, to the person who says it takes longer to explain how to do it, I might as well just do it myself. It's true. It does take longer to explain it the first time. But once you explain it the first time and give people an opportunity to do it so that they can be trained, then you save yourself all the time because you never have to touch it again. And in terms of if you want it done right, you've got to do it yourself. Here's the beauty of the Freedom Compass. What's in your drudgery zone might be in somebody else's desire zone. And if you hire right so that you have compatible people that offset what's in your drudgery zone with what's in their desire zone, then not only can they do it as well as you could do it, they could do it better than you could imagine doing it. And that's basically how I've grown my entire business. I have 35 full-time people. Last year, we grew 62%. And I hire specifically for people that are doing their desire zone activities so that everybody's functioning in their strengths and doing the things that they love and the things that they're proficient at. So that's a real key. And then the whole thing about affording, you know, I can't afford for somebody to do it. You could take baby steps. I'm not advocating going out and hiring a big staff or even hiring somebody full time. You could start as a solopreneur or as a leader just with a part-time virtual assistant. That's how I started. Back in 2011, when I left the big corporate world, where I was managing a large company where we were doing a quarter of a billion dollars a year, and then I stepped into a solopreneur job where I couldn't even find the FedEx box, I had to start small. And so I hired a virtual executive assistant who worked five hours a week. And I did that for a couple of weeks. I saw the value of it. And then I upped their time to about 10 hours a week, then 15 hours, and 20 hours. 
But here's how the conversation often goes. I had a client by the name of Greg, and Greg said, look, I've got a business where I have to have a web presence, and I know just kind of enough about web design and web development uh, to do it myself. And it's probably not the best use of my time, but I really don't feel like I can afford somebody else to do it now. I said, well, let me ask you a question, Greg. How much do you bill for? What's your hourly rate? And he said, $150 an hour. I said, okay. I said, what would it cost you to get a WordPress developer? You know, somebody that was really good that knew what they were doing, that could do a little bit of design work too. He said, you know, probably $50 an hour. I said, then why are you paying somebody $150 an hour that you admit isn't that good? <laughs> and the lights went on. And he went, wow. I said, if you hired somebody at $50 an hour, it would free you up to bill for that additional time and you'd come out ahead $100 an hour. And that's how we have to think about delegation. It requires an investment first, but boy, that's when we begin to reap the rewards. And that's when we begin to clone ourselves in a sense because we've got other people that are helping us. And for folks who are professionals and not business owners, what are some key things you'd recommend they delegate? I think the same thing, go back to the Freedom Compass, start with the drudgery zone because your company is probably not paying you to do those things that you don't love and those things that you're not proficient at. If they are, you're in the wrong job. So get rid of those things because it's not the best and highest use of you. Then go to the disinterest zone, then the distraction zone. Again, focus on those few things that really create the leverage, the things that your employer thinks the results you ought to be delivering. That's where you're going to go to see the advance in your career. Very good. And when it comes to cutting, how do you recommend to be cut distractions? Well, you know, you got to have an offensive plan to begin with. And I talk in the book about how to design your quarter, how to design your week, and how to design your day. Once you have a good offensive plan, then you got to come up with a defensive plan for the interruptions. And I distinguish between interruptions and distractions, two different things. Interruptions are the external things. You know, it's people dropping by to visit. It's that uh, text message you get. You know, it's people interrupting you. And I often talk to leaders who say, I can't get my own work done because I've got so many people interrupting me to help help them with their work. So I think one of the best strategies is to have a good offense on this too. First of all, schedule time to get your most important work done. Make it a commitment and put it on your calendar. What gets scheduled is what gets done. Then preempt those interruptions by going to the people who are most likely to interrupt you and you know who they are, go to those people and say, hey, look, I'm about to do some really important focused work, and it's important that I don't get interrupted, but I want to be available to serve you. So are there any questions you have, anything I can help you with before I go into this session? All right. This is awesome because now all of a sudden you put them on notice, and you've also not been a jerk about it. You've communicated that you want to help them, but you kind of want to do it on your terms. Then you got distractions. Now, distractions are all the stuff that look external but are really a problem with ourselves, with self-control. This could be jumping over to Facebook. And the problem is we've got multi-billion dollar social media companies who are doing a tremendous amount of research and whose entire business model is built on hijacking our psychology and manipulating our dopamine. They want us to spend as much time on those platforms as possible. Why? Because they're repackaging our attention and they're selling it to the highest bidder in the form of advertisers. So we have to combat that. And the best way to do it, I think, is to use technology to fight technology. So for example, my smartphone, it looks like a really cool device. It does a gazillion things. I've got an iPhone XS Max. It does a bazillion things, but it's a very sophisticated distraction advice if I'm not careful. So on my phone, I've removed email, 
I've removed Slack, which is our internal communication program. And I've removed all social media with the exception of Instagram because I'm trying to build my Instagram following. But even there, I've used the technology to fight technology. So I go into settings, screen time, and I limit my use of Instagram to 30 minutes a day. Even better, I gave my phone to my wife and I said, set a passcode for that so that I can't cheat. And don't tell me the passcode. And so when my time is up on Instagram, my time is up. There's a great app for the desktop that works on Windows or Mac or any platform called Freedom. And you can find it at freedom.2. I don't have any relationship with them except that I use this program and love it. But it allows you to selectively turn off apps and websites for a specific period of time, which allows you to stay focused where you do your most creative breakthrough kind of work. The only way to defeat Freedom is to completely reboot your computer. So that gives me just enough friction so that I can remember my intention that I'm trying to get focused work done. And it enables me to avoid the distraction. Excellent. What do you think about mindfulness practice when it comes to building the capacity to resist distraction? I think it's really important. I meditate every morning for 15 minutes. And, you know, it just gives me the opportunity to collect my thoughts, to kind of get centered, to get focused, to get reconnected with my most important priorities. And again, it kind of goes back to the the freedom that I talked about before, the freedom to do nothing. And it's often underrated. And I'd love to dig in for a moment. Now, when you say meditation, are, are you referring to more of a, a mind training exercise or more of a prayer exercise? Well, I actually do both. So I do pray. And I also do uh, just straight up meditation. I use an app called One Giant Mind. Are you familiar with that? I know a couple. I don't know that one. It's awesome. If you're familiar with Headspace, it's kind of similar to that, but I actually like it better and it's free. But one giant mind. It has uh, 12 initial lessons and then you can go into a 30-day challenge, but the instruction is fantastic. Oh, lovely. Well, thank you. Well, I've enjoyed a little bit of all of them in terms of of calm, simple habit, Headspace, and and they all give me a little bit of a different perspective. I go, oh yeah, that's a really good one. Thank you. So so, uh, much appreciated. We'll, We'll check out another one. Yeah, try it. Cool. All right, so we talked about stopping, we talked about cutting, and and now what? Yeah, so now we get to that third section of the book, which is called ACT. You know, it's a little bit counterintuitive because you think that ACT ought to come first, but I find that you got to stop, you know, kind of reflect where you want to go. Then you need to cut or prune because anything that's healthy has to be pruned from time to time. But now it's time to act. Now, hopefully, you've gotten rid of all the stuff that's in your drudgery zone, a lot of the stuff in your disinterest and distraction zones, and now we're going to focus on how to get more done in your desire zone, the things that you love and the things that you're good at. That begins with a chapter called Consolidate, and this is all about designing your ideal week. So the idea is that you want to design a week as if you were in 100% control of your time and resources. What would that look like? If you really wanted to give it some intelligent design and not just be reactive to what came over you know, the transom and schedule those things, but actually were very proactive about it. So here's how mine looks, for example. First of all, I want to start with on Mondays is when I have my internal team meetings. And I batch all these together for one simple reason, and it's the concept of context switching. So in other words, anytime I switch a context, for example, I go from a meeting to I go to some time where I'm working on a project to maybe I'm going to record some video. Anytime I go to a different context, there's a certain amount of ramp up time, a certain amount of time to kind of get into the groove, find my equilibrium and get into flow. Well, the less you can do that, the more momentum you can build. 
So when I get into that space in my head of meetings and I'm in meeting mode, then I just batch them all together and internal meetings are all on Monday. Tuesday is all about what I call backstage time. This is my time for preparation on the front stage. And everybody's front stage is going to look different, but the front stage is what your employer or your clients are paying you. That's what you're delivering. But there's always some backstage work that has to be done in order to do that. So if you're a lawyer, for example, your front stage might be arguing a case before a court or negotiating a contract on behalf of a client. But there's a lot of research in the backstage that has to go into that preparation. So for me, Tuesday is all about that preparation. Wednesday and Thursday for me are front stage activities. So for example, when I record my podcast, I do that in a day and a half, once a quarter, and I record 13 episodes in a row. It takes me a day and a half, but then I don't think about it for another quarter. I get into that headspace and I stay focused and knock it out. Then on Friday is when I try to consolidate my external meetings. So if anybody wants to meet with me, they come in from out of town or a vendor or a client or whatever, I try to move those to Friday. Why? Because I don't want those meetings interrupting my progress on my front stage days or my backstage days. And then, of course, I have, and a lot of people don't know about this, but there's actually an offstage. All of life doesn't have to be work. And so on the weekends, on Saturday and Sunday for me, I'm not thinking about work. I don't talk about work. I don't read about work. I don't do work. Why? Because I want to get back in on Monday morning totally rejuvenated and ready to, to hit the ground running. So that, for me, is my ideal week. And this could be a game changer for people to begin to get some sense of control back. And I would say, Pete, probably at any given week, I probably approximate that about 80%. You know, things are going to happen. I don't try to be legalistic about it. But boy, going into the week with a plan is a whole lot better than just reacting to what comes over the transom. Does that make sense? I like that a lot. Yes. What do you think about in terms of total hours of work in a day and a week, energy levels and optimizing that? Yeah, I keep my work to 40 hours a week. And I can tell you that the science, and I've got, I quoted in the book, but once you get past about 55 hours a week, there's an inverse relationship between the amount of time you work and the level of productivity you have. So it actually goes backwards after you give, get 55 hours, been a lot of study done on this, but the average person is buying into what I call the hustle fallacy, you know, where you've got to work 80 hours, you've got to work a hundred hours. That's a recipe for burnout. And it's also a recipe for screwing up your life, screwing up your health screwing up your most important relationships. And what I'm after, personally, is what I call the double win. I want to win at work, but I want to succeed at life. And I'm not willing to compromise either for the sake of the either or the other one. Well, and so I'd love to get your take. So I don't know if you would liken yourself to this, but I think of, you know, hey, Michael Hyatt, Elon Musk, two titans, <laughs> very different perspectives. Yes, I guess when it comes to Elon Musk, it's like, I cannot deny that that is one successful dude who has made a lot of things happen. And and he espouses very much the, the hustle mentality. He does. So I don't know. How do we reconcile that? Well, I, I think it depends on how you define success. He's blown through a couple of marriages. He's by his own admission, doesn't talk to his kids, hardly. He's sleeping at the factory, you know, so much so that his fans started a Kickstarter page to buy him a new couch, kind of as a joke, uh, so they'd have something better to sleep on. He's appeared in the media and said some crazy things, which have led even to fines from the SEC and uh, other federal agencies. And so I think it depends on on how you find success. And, And look, I'm not holding myself up as a paragon of virtue, but here's the thing. Here's what's possible. 
Last year, I took off 160 days. Now, that counts weekends, okay? So 160 days, including a one-month sabbatical, which I've done every year uh, for the last eight years. And my business grew 62%. Awesome. (laughs) I really think this idea of achieving more by doing less, the hustle fallacy, I want to keep my health. You know, I'd like to live a long time. I've been married for 40 years, almost 41 years. I have five grown daughters who I adore and who like me. This doesn't just happen by chance. It's not because I'm lucky, but I've tried to focus on those things. And again, I'm not, I'm not trying to hold myself up as the, the paragon of virtue, but I'm just saying that there's a different model for success than the one that Elon Musk espouses. And I'm not trying to judge him, but I just, I just look at the fruit, look at the results. All right. Well done. Thank you. Well, tell me before we sort of shift gears into your favorite things, any sort of key mistakes folks make when they're trying to say, you know, heck yes, I want to get free to focus and, and do these things. Uh, what are some some roadblocks or some fumbles folks make along the way as they're trying to enact this stuff? Well, I think the biggest tip I could give people is to get a plan for your day. This is where you're going to get the biggest leap forward. And so I advocate something called the daily big three. Now, here's how it goes for most people. They start the day, if they have a to-do list, and not everybody uh, works with a to-do list, which is also a guarantee for being reactive. But uh, let's say you have a to-do list, and the average person's going to have somewhere between 20 and 25 items on that list. No kidding. Yeah. So before they begin the day, they're already feeling overwhelmed. Like, there's no way that I can accomplish what's on my list. They get to the end of the day, and even if they've done half of it, where do they focus? On the half they didn't get done. So they go to bed defeated, and this becomes a vicious cycle, and it creates a lot of dissatisfaction, a lot of frustration, and ultimately leads to burnout. But the problem is they've created a game. They've set themselves up to fail by creating a game that they can't possibly win. So what I suggest is instead of that, go ahead and identify the three highest leverage tasks that you can do today. So not all tasks are created equal. We know from the Pareto principle that 20% of the effort drives 80% of the results. So let's just go ahead on the front end and say, what are the three most important things that I could do today? Now, all of a sudden, that seems manageable. And at the end of the day, when I accomplish those three things, even if I didn't do all the other trivial things, at least I got the most important things done. You do three important tasks like that a day, You do it 250 days a year, which is the average number of work days people have. That's 750 important things per year. That, more than anything else, will give you a sense of control and give you a sense that you're winning. And when you feel like you're winning, it builds your confidence and it builds your momentum. Yes. I like feeling like I'm winning. Well said. Me too. Me too. Well, now, could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Yeah, I think one of my most favorite quotes is one by Warren Buffett. And he said that the difference between successful people And really successful people is that really successful people say no to almost everything. Beautiful. And how about a favorite study or experiment or a bit of research? I would say that the research that I've done into sleep has been probably the most rewarding and especially into naps because I sort of knew intuitively that napping was a powerful way to rejuvenate and kind of reboot in the middle of the day. And I've faithfully practiced it for about 30 years, but you know, I took a nap today. So between interviews, I laid down for 20 minutes, fell to sleep. I trained myself to fall to sleep quickly, and I wake up, and I'm a little bit groggy maybe for 10 minutes or so, drink a cup of coffee, and then it's like I'm rebooted. Well, now I want to know, how do you train yourself to fall asleep quickly? You know what? It's not unlike training yourself to meditate. So I don't put a lot of pressure on myself to fall asleep, 
what I do is try to try to focus on my breathing and focus on relaxing. And if you do that and do it routinely, you'll find yourself falling asleep. And if you don't fall asleep, it's still rejuvenating, even if you do nothing but just put your feet up and relax. And how about a favorite book? Well, I'm one of those guys that I read a ton. And so I tend to focus on the books that I've read most recently. And the book that I love that I just finished here about two weeks ago was Digital Minimalism by Cal Newport. Have you read that? I have perused it. Uh, Can you tell me maybe a, a takeaway that was particularly valuable for you? Yeah, the biggest one was on the value of high quality leisure. So really being intentional about your leisure time and how it correlates to our work. It makes us more productive at work. But that was really challenging and and really exciting to think about. And how about a favorite tool so that helps you be awesome at your job? Let me think here for a second. I would say the tool that I'm enjoying the most right now is a tool called Notion. Have you heard of it? No. So Notion is kind of like a personal wiki. It could be. A lot of people are using it as an Evernote replacement. And I'm still using Evernote, but only as a digital junk drawer. Notion is where I put structured information, information I want to get back to. And it's a whole lot of fun. And it's it's an excellent, outstanding tool. Interesting. Thank you. And how about a favorite habit? My favorite habit, without question, is my morning routine. You know, just going through my drill every morning, setting myself up, for high performance. And I, again, I I learned this from the world of athletics where the world's best athletes have a pregame ritual. And I think of my morning time as a pregame ritual. That's the time when I'm going to pray, the time I'm going to meditate, the time I'm going to exercise and get fueled for the day. And is there a particular nugget you share that really seems to connect and resonate and get quoted back to you frequently? I think it's that one about work and succeeding at life. I think that that with my clients, that's just captivated their imagination and gets them really excited because I think most people have kind of fallen into this idea that, you know, you got to give up one or the other. You can't have both. And I think when people are uh, given a model, and that's what I try to do in the book, Free to Focus, for how that can be done, it resonates with people. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Well, in terms of the book, I would go to freetofocusbook.com, and it has links to all the places where you can buy the book. But more importantly, It also has $500 worth of free bonus material related to the book that you can get just by turning in your receipt. So that's all you got to do. Turn in your receipt, claim the free bonuses, and it has some amazing stuff, including the audio version of the book for free. And then for all things related to me, just Michael Hyatt, Hyatt with a a Y, not an I, michaelhyatt.com. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Yeah, I would say that in this kind of distraction economy, where people are so sidetracked and there's so much sideways energy and so much fake working going on, if you can learn to focus, that could become a superpower. And I would just encourage people to differentiate themselves from their competitors and from their peers by being the person that really can deliver the highly creative, deeply important work that moves their business forward, that moves their personal uh, work forward, because so many people are sidetracked and distracted. You can differentiate yourself and make a real difference in the world. Beautiful. Michael, this has been a ton of fun. Thanks so much for taking the time. Thank you, Pete. Appreciate it. I really appreciate Michael's wisdom and I really appreciate our sponsors. Check them out. I think Michael shared so much good stuff. I've been enjoying the One Giant Mind app as Johnny is teaching me a different approach to meditation with a mantra and uh, playing with that, which has been useful, as well as the notion of feeling like a winner each day with the 
big three. And often I cannot restrain myself to write now just three things. So I have like three things over the line, sort of on top. And like, these are the ones I really mean. And these are all the other ones I just don't want to forget about. So I'm going to write them, but they don't actually count in terms of what I get to call a win. So they are actually physically separated on the page. And that way I feel like I've downloaded them from my brain, uh, but I also see what counts and lets me feel like victory accomplished. So thanks for that, Michael. Hope you dug that and more. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep423. If you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe here for our next guest, Jeremy Kubacek. Boy, this guy is so wise when it comes to what really makes a leader effective and insights into the human condition and coaching and what we need to flourish. So I think you really enjoy this one. Hope to get you there. Peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.